book of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 1, when you got it, say so. And it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you so very much for this day that you have given us. Thank you for the time that we were able to lift up your name in song. Thank you for the reminder, Lord, of how great and wondrous you are. And we thank you for your word that is true. And this morning, we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us clearly, that you would open our ears, that we would be able to hear your voice, remove distractions from our minds and our hearts, captivate us with your truth, and let us not just hear your word, but let us respond to it as faithful doers, Lord God. In faith, let us respond to you and bring you glory and honor as we obey your word, God. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. And everyone said... Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. If you don't have an outline, just raise your hand and the ushers will get you an outline. As always, it's important for me that you have an outline so you can follow along with us in the introduction of the sermon. I want to make sure that you're able uh, to take some notes. And as you notice, we are starting a new series in the book of Colossians. And so every week I challenge you and I encourage you to remember that you are a disciple of Jesus. You're not just supposed to receive from God, but you're supposed to give as well. And so as disciples of Jesus, we're supposed to make disciples. And the way that we do that is by either leading someone to faith in Christ, by sharing the gospel with them, or by helping them grow in their faith. And so you can utilize this, sit down with a brother, a sister, a co-worker, a neighbor, or someone like that, and let them know, hey man, we're learning the book of Colossians in our church. You want to walk through this with me and help them grow in their faith. It'll help you grow in your faith as well, because I know this, when I teach something, I learn it better. Amen? Amen. So don't forget that you are a disciple and a disciple maker. So in your outline here, uh, more than in the beginning there, first paragraph, more than ideas or, or, or an ideology or a set of facts, truth is a person. And I think that this becomes so important because for some of us, right, I mean, I don't consider myself like a super brainy person, but it's really easy for me to sit down with this book. And as I look at this book, I look at it from an academic standpoint. And I want to look at this book and I want to look at what that word means in its original. I want to look at the context of when this was written. I want to see who was doing that. And we're going to do that in a couple of moments as we look at Colossians. But what I have to always remember is that this book is not just a book. This is not just some other book. This is a book that the Bible says the word of God is living and active. The book of John tells us that the word became flesh. It says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so truth is a person. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth and the life, right? No one comes to the Father except through me. And so truth is not just something that we have that is objective that we can look at, but it is a person that we are in a relationship with. So when Christians say, It's not just about religion. What we are really communicating is that it is about a relationship with the one who died for us, rose for us, and is the truth that we believe. If you look at the rest of that paragraph, to know the person of Jesus Christ is to know the truth, and that is to know the truth that can save us, set us free, and establish our lives in the purpose for which we were created. And so again, knowing Jesus is the way that we get saved. It's the way that we are set free, and it's the way that we are established 
established in his purpose for us. Second paragraph there, Bishop J.B. Lightfoot, he's a commentator on the book of Colossians. He says, the epistle to the Colossians, the doctrine of the person of Christ is here stated with greater precision and fullness than in any other of St. Paul's epistles. And so just so you give you some background, the Apostle Paul, and we're going to talk a little bit more about Colossians in its, in its context. And I want you to know for today, the introduction of this sermon is going to be the longest por- portion of it because we're starting this new series in Colossians. So I want to talk about that. But what we have to realize is that the Apostle Paul wrote 13 books for sure in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, as he wrote those books, he was, he was dealing with different topics or different scenarios that were going on in different churches. And, and in that, he would deal with the gospel and he would present certain facts about Jesus. And so you'll find different facets being expounded upon in these different books. And in the book of Colossians, it was imperative that Paul spoke about the grandeur, the beauty. The reason why I put that spoken word up there is because it points to the wonder of who Jesus is, the greatness of who Jesus is, the the worthiness of Jesus and all of his splendor. And that's what the Apostle Paul does. And the reason, if you look at the second part of that paragraph there, this was necessary since the heresies of Jewish legalism and pagan mysticism, which plagued the church of Colossae, were primary attacks against the person of Jesus Christ. What they were doing in this book, or what was happening in Colossae, is they were attacking who Jesus was. And so I want you to see a... um, a picture here of a map that it shows you kind of where they were. And so if you look at this map here, you find that Paul, and just to give you a little idea, Paul's first missionary journeys, they were all over here really in this area where it's present Turkey and Greece. And so he was throughout all of this area here. That's his first missionary journeys. The second and fourth or the third and fourth missionary journeys took him down this way where you see like this green line and brought him back to Rome. But what the place where Paul is writing to right now is this place here, Colossae. He's writing there present day it's Turkey back in those days it was Asia Minor so when you think of Asia Minor like you think of Asia I know for me whenever I would hear Asia I'm thinking okay Asia like the Asia we think of today that's not what we're talking about with Paul going to these 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 provinces and ministering the gospel there this was one of his prison epistles right so these are some of the facts about this book and prison epistles meaning that he was in Rome when he writes to these people in Colossae and so he's in Rome he's in prison there's four books that he writes while he is in prison in Rome, that's Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. And so he writes those around 60 to 62 AD during that time that he's there. Uh, and and, and uh, at, the, at one time, Colossae was actually a very prominent city, uh, very, very well known, very wealthy, but they changed the, uh, a, a route through there. And so no longer was Colossae like a main, um, Colossae a main city. It was a place where, uh, you know, Paul was, was ministering to, but it wasn't a main city at this time when Paul. Paul writes to them, Paul was not the person who established this church. Right? Paul never, when he was in Ephesians, when he was in Ephesus, if you go to the book of Acts, don't do that now, but if you write, if, if you um, go to the book of Acts chapter 19, you will notice the apostle Paul, he goes to, to Ephesus. And when he goes there to Ephesus, there's some believers there. He asks them if they've received the Holy Spirit. They say they never heard of the Holy Spirit. He preaches them, lays hands on them. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues. The power of God comes upon them. He remains there for three years. And while he's there in, in those three years, it's believed that Epaphras was a person who got saved through Paul's ministry and then went to Colossae and he began to, uh, or he's the one that actually established this church. And so that's the, 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 the background of this church. And so what happened was Colossae was mixed 
There was predominantly Gentiles, meaning they were not Jews. They didn't know the covenants of God. They didn't know the Old Testament law. They didn't have all of that foundation. So predominantly Gentiles, but there were some Jews there, which is what led to what they had going on, this hodgepodge of belief that they had where there was some Jewish legalism and there was some Eastern philosophy, and then they had some elements of Gnosticism in there. How many of y'all know what Gnosticism is? Raise your hand if you heard that word before. Gnostic or Gnostic, right? Well, let me help you out, right? So what this word means, right? is it means knowledge. is where it comes from, um, gnosis. And so what, what, what they believed or what their beliefs were is they, they, they were all about this knowledge. And they, so, so they wanted to answer some real deep philosophical questions, right? And so in their, in their pursuit, they had all of these different you know, ways of looking at stuff. But one of the main things that set them apart was that these guys believed that everything that was immaterial or the spirit realm, that was good. Anything that was material, that was evil. And so they had some weird ways of thinking about stuff, like what you did in the flesh didn't matter. What you did here didn't matter. You could be as wicked as you wanted to be, and it was okay because your spirit later on is what really mattered. And so, again, they had some really messed up beliefs that were there. And so this false teaching was a deceptive combination of many things. Jewish legalism was one of them, oriental philosophy, pagan astrology, mysticism, ascetism, and even a touch of Christianity. Now, I want you to understand what was going on. This is a church that was established. It's a few years later, and they're, they're now being attacked by this heresy. They're being attacked by these false teachers that are coming there with all of this mix of beliefs that are there. There was something for everybody. Pay attention now. There was something for everybody in this belief system, and this was made, and this is what made it so dangerous. The false teachers claimed that they were not denying the Christian faith, but only lifting it to a higher level. Did you catch that? They were not denying the Christian faith. They were only elevating it to a higher level. Now, now I hope you caught that because that is what is happening in our culture today. We're not denying the Christian faith. We're just trying to elevate it. We're trying to take it to another place with some fresh revelation, with some deeper understanding, with some other truths that are there. I was, I, I, I'm, in, I'm going through a class right now as I'm, finish, as I'm going, finishing my bachelor's and going for my master's. And in this class, you have to interact in this, in this class with students. And there was one of the students there, as he did his report on the, first two, on the first two lessons, he was talking about a mission trip that he went to when he went to India. And so when he went on this mission trip to India, he said it was amazing. But he made a point. He said, when I was on the bus with a couple that they believed, they, they used to be Hindus, and they believed that Jesus was God, but the only God. And he said, this is very important when you go into that culture, he said, because what happens is Hindus, as you know, they believe in many deities. And so when you present them Jesus as the savior, they see Jesus as the savior deity. And so I obviously want to be saved. He's the deity that came to do that. I will put my faith in him. Tears running down my eyes. This savior came to save me, but it doesn't eliminate their devotion to other gods. Until they come to the understanding that all of those things are false gods, hence the reason why he makes the point when he's sitting with this couple on this bus that they are believing in Jesus alone. Our culture is doing the same stuff. We want to go ahead and add Jesus to our lives. We want to make Jesus part of our lives. We want to put Jesus in the mix, but we don't want soul devotion to Jesus. 
There's nothing new under the sun, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us, right? Everything that was or everything that is has been, everything that's going to be, it was before. And it's the same stuff that we see here in those days is happening now. Gnosticism grew out of the philosophical question, why is there evil in a world that was created by a good and holy God? You ever heard that question? Okay, so way back in the day, it's the same question. The question hasn't changed. The question is still there. They just seem to think that they had some kind of answers. And so it's important for us that we recognize what was going on in Colossae and the purpose of this book was to do what? It was to address these false teachings and their conclusions and establish the church in the truth of what? That it really is all about Jesus. That's the theme of our series. It really is all about Jesus. You can write this down as, as, as we go through um, as we go through the, the, the book, we'll get into all of these texts, but you can write down Colossians 1.20 because in here you see in the cross of Christ, Jesus settled the sin question. If you look at Colossians 2 and verse 15, in the cross of Christ, he completely defeated all satanic forces. He put an end to the legal demands of the law in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 to 17. And then Jesus, what we understand is that Jesus Christ alone is preeminent. He is the preeminent one. Look down at verse 15 in chapter 1 really quickly. Verse 15 to verse 18, this is our memory verse for this book. You know, every time we go through a book, we have a memory verse to go with it. I try to um, grab a verse that I think speaks to what, what is the, the, the heart of this book. And here's what it says. It says, he is the image of the invisible. God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things exist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, that he may have the preeminence. And who is he? It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so here's what I want to say, last paragraph here in your outline. As the people of God, we must be vigilant against the unbiblical teachings and beliefs that are being introduced to the church. Are you here? We must be. As I was sitting down this morning preparing for this sermon, I went to YouTube because I, want, because I get all my sermons from YouTube. Just kidding. I went to YouTube because I, I wanted to sing a song as I was getting ready to have some devotional time with the Lord, and I don't have the song, so it's, it's my favorite song, right? It's what, 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 what mercy has done for me. And, you know, whenever you have a YouTube account, they have some, uh, you know, some suggested things they think you're going to like. And there was one that caught my attention. I looked at it, and it, it, was, a, it was Carlton Pearson, and it was Megyn Kelly, and it was a Today Show, and it was like seven minutes and 42 seconds. And I said, okay, I got seven minutes and 42 seconds. I can give to this. And, it's, and, and it was because it was talking about the price that he had to pay in order to communicate this new revelation. And just to give you a little history and background on Carlton Pearson, for those of you that may not know him, he was one of the greatest preachers about, you know, probably like 20 years ago. He went to Oral Roberts University. He was actually a direct disciple of Oral Roberts. He had a mega church with like four to 6,000 people. This guy could sing you out the building. He was one of the smartest guys that I've ever heard communicate. I mean, just articulate, amazing, amazing guy, a powerful dude. And this guy had a revelation one day that hell is not a reality. 
I know the Pope was accused of that the other day, but that's not real. That's false. I just, I, I just want to say that, not because like, I'm a defender of the Pope, but I just want to let you know. You need to check the facts on that, right? But I can assure you Carlton Pearson believes that hell is not real. There's a movie that's coming out on Netflix, and it's like, I think it's called Sunday's Coming. Don't watch it. You know, don't do it, you know? If you want to watch it, you can, but just don't believe the lie. Because the reality is he started to think about his family. and He explains this. He started to think about his family and people that could be in hell. And he came to the realization, how could a loving and gracious God, merciful God, also condemn people to an eternity in hell? And the reality is, why do we have the two? Listen, I can't explain to you why hell is a reality. Because this is the thing. He believes there's hell, just nobody's there. What on earth is hell there for then? Hey, it's just there to just look at. It's like having a pool in your house. That's probably a bad analogy that you're never going to jump in, right? Like, I don't want to jump in that pool. Like, that lake, let's not jump there. But the, 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 the reality is that he has this belief that this is not like that, that, that there is no hell, that God is a universal God, that everybody is going to come to heaven. It's false teaching is what it is. And let me say this because I think that this becomes so important for us. Our best guard, this is the last part of that paragraph, our best guard when we're being vigilant against unbiblical teaching isn't becoming well-versed in the false, but being well-acquainted with the truth. Is being well acquainted with the truth. It is, it is not becoming an expert in Islam. It is not becoming an expert in, 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 in the Quran or in Mormonism or becoming an expert in, in what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. I think all of that has its place. And we did an, apolog, uh, an apologetic conference a while back and we had an atheist, a, a former atheist up here. We had a former Mormon group up here. We had a former um, um, per, a person who was a Muslim here. And I mean, they brought some real heavy and strong stuff. And I think it's important that you understand those beliefs on a basic level, but I don't need to become an expert in the Quran. I need to know who Jesus is. I need to know the truth of God's word because then when the lie comes, I'm like, wait a second, that's not true. When the lie is spoken, there's something because what happens is this word is living. God's spirit is moving through it. So when I'm studying this word, when I'm ingesting this word, when I'm meditating in this word, you know what's happening to my heart? My heart is being changed. God's spirit is developing me, growing me in my inner man. And then you know what happens? When the lie comes up, wait a second, there's a check in my heart. There's a check in my spirit. This is false. See, here's the thing that I, from the big idea that I have for you this morning. When our lives are really all about Jesus, the world around us will know all about Jesus. When our lives are really all about Jesus, the world around us will know all about Jesus. The world around you, whoever's around you, I don't, I don't know, when I say the world around you, it can be your kids, it could be your neighbors, it can be your workplace, the world around you, when you are all about Jesus, when your life is really all about Christ, guess what, the world around you is going to hear all about him. I remember when I was, when I was younger, when I, first, when I first, around the first time when I started to talk to my wife, um, I was very opposed to falling in love with her. It's the only way I can say it. One day I remember her, I used to be in a choir in the church and she would bring me home. She was a choir director, good choir director that she was. And she took me over, I didn't have, I didn't have a ride. And one day as she's driving me home and she's dropping me off, I get out of her vehicle and I look at her, well, right before I got out of her vehicle, I looked at her and I said, you know, you are from the devil and I'm gonna pray that God remove you from my life. I closed the door and went inside. <laughs> 
I did not pray that prayer, okay? I, obviously, 21 years in September, right? I didn't pray that prayer, but it was because there was something happened inside of my heart that I, didn't, I was trying to deny. I was trying to get away from it. And, then, and, and the reason why I bring that up is because my, the guy that was the best man in my wedding, he was a mentor in my life, the first guy that ever tried to in, invest in my life in the faith. And I remember him and I, we would talk on the phone, you know, once a week or whatever. And one day we're on the phone after I've known Elaine a couple of months, and he's like, so you really like this, this, this lady, Elaine, don't you? I'm like, bro, shut up. I'm like, what are you talking about? And so I got all upset and all offended. And he's like, it's Elaine this, Elaine that, Elaine this. Elaine. And so here's, 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 here's the reason why I bring up that story. And my heart was all about Elaine. Hello, somebody. And everybody else around me was going to know about that. And it's the same thing with you and Jesus. You can say you're all about Jesus, but if you don't ever talk about him, I got to question that. You can say you're all about Jesus, but if you are always talking about other things, other things, there's other things that are priorities, other things that are important, other things that are the top of the conversation, other things that are always the topic. I got a question. Are, are you really all about Jesus? Because when we are, you can't hide it. You can't contain it. You can't keep it. It's like Jeremiah when he tried to shut up. He was like, he told God, I'm not going to prophesy anymore. And then he came to the point, he was like, man, if I don't speak this word, it's like fire shut up in my bones. He was like, man, I can't shut up. I've got to talk about this. That's what love does. I mean, I don't know about anybody else in this place, but when you love someone, you talk about them. When you experience the love of that person, you talk about them, and it's that way for us in our walk with Christ. And so here are a few takeaways that I have for you because obviously, like I said, the intro is going to be the longest part, but I got three things I want you to see here. The first one is to say this with me. God's will, God's will for, our lives for our lives is found in our pursuit of Jesus. God's will for our lives is found in our pursuit of Jesus. Look at how Paul opens up this letter. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Say the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy. And so Paul's introduction to his letter, he's letting you know who he is. He's letting the people know who he is. He's calling them to hear and for them to recognize, first of all, that he is an apostle of Christ. And the reason why he's doing this, because he doesn't do this in every single one of his letters where he calls himself an apostle, but the reason why he's doing this is because, number one, he didn't found this church. And so he's letting them know the authority with which he is bringing this correction to the false teaching that they have been experiencing. It is because he is an apostle. He is one who has been sent by Christ in order to do what? In order to lay the foundation, in order to communicate truth, in order to build the faith of the people for the work of the ministry and to raise them up. And so he calls upon that, but he says something in the tail end of it. He says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He was assured of the will of God. He was 100% certain of what God's will was for his life. There was no question that he knew what God's will was. And so here's my question for you. Are you that sure of God's will for your life? Are you that sure of God's will for your life? I mean, this guy, he had it. Look, he had something that most of us don't have. I mean, I, I know very few people that have had like an audible voice that have knocked us off of our high horse and been like, hey, humbled me. Because that's what Paul did. Paul was going to persecute Christians, right? He was on his way to persecute Christians. He hated them, didn't want anything to do with them. And so he was on his way to do that. God literally knocks him off his high horse, bright light, knocks him down. Paul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Whole conversation. Paul ends up in a place praying. Ananias is over here, and he's praying, and God is like, I want you to go lay hands on Saul. And he's like, um, God, do you know who Saul is? <laughs> 
It's like, you know God asks you something crazy, like when you ask that kind of question back, like, hold on a second, are you sure you have all the information here? Like, right? Like, I don't know. I, I just, he, he does that. And he's like, no, I have a purpose for him, right? What's the purpose for him? The purpose is this guy suffers for my glory. What a calling. Amen. I mean, that's the calling. But Paul knew. He knew who he, who he was called to be. He knew what he was called to do. God makes it crystal clear. Can I ask you a question? Do you think that you can be that sure of God's will? I think we can. I think he wants us to be sure of his will. I think he wants us to walk in his will. God made it abundantly clear of what, Paul, what Paul's purpose was. And I say this, he, he went from being a persecuting pursuer of Jesus to be a passionate pursuer of Jesus. See, he was pursuing Jesus for the wrong reasons. Lee Strobel, he was another guy that was like that. His wife got saved. Lee Strobel's like, you know what? I'm going to disprove this Jesus. So my wife starts talking to me about this Jesus. And guess what? He's the one that wrote a case for Christ, a case for Christianity. He's got all these cases. Hello, somebody. He was a lawyer. And he's like, look, I'm going to lay these cases out for you so you can defend the faith. Because what? He was persecuting. He was coming against Christ. You're not going to come against Christ like that. If you really want to pursue him, his life was changed. And so for you in here, don't pursue him in a negative. Pursue him in the positive. Pursue him in the positive so you and I can be assured of what God's will is. Why is it so important for us to know God's will? It is only when we are assured of God's will in any given area of our lives that we will be the most fruitful because we will have the motivation to be the most faithful. Did you hear that? The reason why it's so important for us to know the will of God for our lives is because when we know the will of God for our lives in any given area, we will be the most fruitful because we will have the motivation to be the most faithful. Listen, in your marriage, when I sit down and do premarital counseling, the, the, the first, one of the first questions I ask any couple in here or in that room with me is, how do you know this is the one? How do you know? Why are you marrying this person? You know why I asked that question? Because a year into my marriage, guess what? My wife had her clothes on under her pajamas. Hello, somebody. And she was trying to run out the house because she was over me. And I was like, hold on a second. Time out. We're married. We don't do this kind of stuff, right? The reality is marriage is not easy. Hello? It doesn't mean it's bad. It's just not easy, right? I mean, there's, there's issues in marriage. There's stress in marriage. There's hardship in marriage. And if I am not sure when I get into this in the foundational place that I am marrying the right person, guess what happens? When all hell starts to break loose, I'm like, man, did I marry the right person? I don't know. And, and, when, and when, you, <laughs> when you start to see their sin, you start to see their un, ungodliness, you're like, and I wasn't who I was dating. Come on now. That was, that, 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 I, I didn't see that when we were dating. I, I didn't see. You, he, he never smelled. She never smelled like that. I'm just saying, right? <laughs> they never looked like this. I mean, we were dating. I was like, wait, whoa, hold on. My, my wife, she made me laugh the other day. She said that, um, I, and I, I don't even remember this, but she said I think it was the first night that, that we woke up together, right? And, um, or not the night, but the morning, the first morning that we woke up together after being. What, what, anyway, so yeah. She, she's gave me permission to sell this story. So, I, <laughs> I love you. I, I, you know, we're here. I don't have any hair, so I can talk about your hair. But, but anyway, I mean, I wasn't bald when she met me. I had amazing hair. It was awesome. And now I'm just, you know, it is what it is. But for her, you know, you, when you, for those of you that are, you know, are, are going to get married or, you know, have ever, you got all kind of hairspray in your hair and you got all this stuff. You got done up, right? Well... When you sleep, which with, you know, you fall asleep like that, right, guess what happens? You wake up 
and you don't look like you did when you went to sleep. Now, I'm telling you this story. I don't even recall this. She says that I looked at her like, whoa, like I was scared. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember this. But see, that's something that's funny for us. But the reality is, if, if in, and not in that moment, like I'm not going to be like, yo, I'm done. You're the wrong one. Like, you know, that, <laughs> your hair's messed up. But, but the, the facts are that when you get into this marriage, things are not always peachy, right? Things aren't always perfect. That is how life is. That is how work is. That is how parenting is. That is how all of these things are. And if we're not sure of God's will when we enter into something, then guess what happens? We're not going to be faithful. And if we're not faithful, we're not going to be fruitful. Second thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, our identity identity is found found in the finished work of Jesus. Our identity is found in the finished work of Jesus. And so look at verse 2. He says this. He says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. To the saints and faithful brethren who are in Christ. And so he gives us this designation. We now have this new identity. And I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded often that I am a saint. How about you? Anybody? Like I, like, like I have moments, you know, like that, 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 I, that, I, that I'm not, I don't look so much like a saint. But I want you to know at the moment that you and I put our faith in Jesus, we became saints. Are you here? You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait like 20 years until you do a miracle, um, you know, until you do some like great stuff for you to receive some kind of sainthood. The moment that we put our faith in Christ, we become this, the saints of God. And then also he goes and he has this other word here, which is brethren. I'm going to talk about faithful in a moment, but he's saints and brethren. So not only are we redeemed, not only are we made new, but also as we are made new, we are given this, this new identity, this new designation, right? We are still still sinners fallen and all that kind of stuff, but our identity before God, God doesn't look and just, hey, you sinner. It's not how he sees you. He sees you as a son. He sees you as a daughter. He loves you. This new identity because of what Jesus did, because since we are all born into sin, since we are all born separated from God, since we are, are all sinners by nature and by choice, and we can do nothing to earn God's righteousness, God has to do something. We talk about it every Sunday during communion. Jesus has to step in, and he does what? He takes our place. He becomes sin for us on the cross so that way we can can be the righteousness of God. We can be the saints of God. We can be those hagios is what that word is in the Greek. Those who are separated. Those are those who are specially his. That's what that is. You're specially his. That's an awesome thing, is it not? We are specially his because of what he does for us on the cross. He shows us this. And so you and I, we have to do what? We have to walk in security of God's love toward us. Why can I, or how can I walk in security for God's love toward us? When I look at the cross, what do I see? I see God's love demonstrated in its greatest way. God comes, he sends his son to die in my place. And that way I can know how much he loves me. And then you know what? I see the power of God's love in his resurrection because what? He rises again to show me, look, the same way death couldn't hold me down, nothing that you do or ever will do is going to hold me back from loving you. That's a beautiful thing. We need to know our identity because you know what's beautiful about this identity? It's not only is it that we are saints, but we're brethren. Hello, somebody. We are brethren. We are brothers and sisters. We're not just brought into a relationship with Jesus. We are brought into a relationship with one another. 
We're brothers and sisters. And here's the beauty. The beauty of this is that we are called to spur one another on to righteous works, to righteous living, to living for the glory and for the honor of God. That's where that word faithful comes in. I want you to know something. Being a saint is something you receive the day you're born again. Faithfulness is something that you prove. Are you here? Jesus said, well done, good and faithful servant. Listen to what he said. Well done. In other words, he's looking at what we're doing. I love the video. It says that he celebrates our faithfulness. He celebrates our faithfulness. He wants us. He's done everything that he can to make us faithful. You know what the motivation is? The motivation is in this last part here. Say this with me. Our sustenance sustenance is found found in the ongoing work of Jesus. Our sustenance is found in the ongoing work of Jesus. Here's some questions I want you to think about. What is it that motivates your soul? What is it that, or what is it that nourishes your soul? What is it that fuels your passion for God? What is it that motivates your obedience to God's commands? What is it that sustains you in the midst of your trials? Look at the last part of that verse there, verse two. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Depending on your version, you may not have the Lord Jesus Christ there, and in in, in some manuscripts, it doesn't have the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why this introduction or this greeting is so important is because what does Paul do? He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He goes on from there, and he says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. And then he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father. And where is it that the grace of God is seen and and expressed? Is it not through Christ? He's pointing out to this church in his greeting from the beginning, saying, listen, it's all about Jesus. It is the grace of God. What is the grace of God? The grace of God is the unmerited favor of God. And when you look at that word in a little bit deeper context, it literally means the divine influence upon our hearts that is displayed in our lives. And here's what we have to realize is that when Paul is communicating grace to you, he does this in all of his epistles, grace to you. He's saying to them, man, I want to see God's goodwill towards you. I want to see God's purposes in you. It's kind of like us today. Like for me, you know, it's funny because in first service, when I meet, when I greet people, I typically don't say, God bless you. But for my brothers and sisters in Christ, when they walk away, I will say, God bless you. Because what am I saying? I'm just, I'm just saying grace and peace in another way. I don't, I don't say God bless you to everyone. Some people I don't say because they're not my brothers. Hello. I'm not going to tell somebody who's not a believer, God bless you. That's like stupid. I'm like asking God to do something he's not going to do, Right? I know all of you are going to be testing me to see what I do when you walk out that door. (laughs) They did it first service too. It's okay. (laughs) I got you. Make sure you're holy by the time you walk out there so I can can say it. Um, You have an opportunity for that. But grace, grace sustains us, right? Grace sustains our hearts. Grace strengthens us. It's God strengthening us. And then it's peace. Where do we get this peace? We get peace with God because of the grace of God, do we not? We get peace with God because of the grace of God, because until we come to Christ, until we submit, until we receive the gift of God's grace, guess what happens? We are enemies of God. We are not at peace with God. And so the Greek word for peace is the word Iranian, and I just want to read this. It means peace between individuals. And when it's talking about Christianity, it means the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ and so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of what, so, of what sort that is. And so what he is saying here is he's saying this peace sustains us. It's not the potential of a trouble-free life. It is a promise of a trouble-free heart. 
It's not the potential of a trouble-free life. We're going to have hardship. We're going to have difficulty. God doesn't say, hey, come to me, and you're never going to have hardship again. What he says, come to me, and I'll give you peace in your heart. Come to me, and I'll give you peace for the storm. I'll give you peace through the storm. I give you peace with me, and that peace is going to reign and rule in your life. Everything we need in this life and for the future is in Christ. Here's the thing. Jesus must be preeminent in our lives, not just prominent in order for us to experience the full benefits of God's grace and peace. So I want you to think about that. The difference between prominence and preeminence. Because for many of us, you know what? Jesus is prominent. He's just not preeminent. He's important in our lives. He's good. You know, he's, he, he's very important. He's first in things, right? He matters in stuff. We consult him about certain things. But is he preeminent? Is he not just important, but is he the most important in everything? Not just important in some things, important over everything. That is what this book is about. It is about the preeminence of Jesus. And so my closing question for you is this. Would you say your life is characterized as being all about Jesus? And let me help you answer the question. If you interviewed the 10 closest people to you, what would they tell you? They might lie to you. What would they tell me? If they had an anonymous survey about your life, what would they say about you? Would they say, whatever your name is, man, they're all about Jesus. Their life is really all about Christ. Christ is preeminent in their life. Or would they say something else? Because if those that are closest to you, if they're not seeing Jesus in you, there's a problem. And so, if Jesus is not preeminent, today's the day for you to repent of that sin. Today's the day for you to turn away from whatever else is preeminent in your life and turn to Christ. Today is the day that you can trust him with all of your life and say, God, I don't want you to be prominent. I want you to be preeminent in every area of my life. Today is the opportunity for you to do that. Amen? Amen. So stand on our feet. Let's pray together. Great God, we come to you today. We humble our hearts in your presence. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to acknowledge whether you are preeminent or just prominent in our lives. I pray for those in this place that, God, you're not even prominent in their life. You're not God in their life. I pray for them that you would draw them to you today, that you would let them recognize the grace that you extend to them, the mercy that you want to show them, God, that they would recognize your call. And God, for those of us in this place that may struggle with you being prominent or preeminent, Lord God, let us be repentant before you and humble before you. And God, may you be preeminent in all things. God, we want to be a church that honors you, that glorifies you, that is all about you. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Come on, give God a hand of praise.